Love is the supreme motivation for doing the will of God. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor to explain. You've crushed the heart of God by your sin. Why would you do that willingly? Why would we even go that way? And so people will stay away. There'll be entire churches that all they talk about is judgment and the hellfires. And you know, judgment is true and hell is a horrible place. But those are poor motivators to action. You know, for love, people do crazy things for love, man. Like love will cause you to do stuff that normally you would never do. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for. Love is what moves you to do what God has called you to do. If it's something else, it's something less, far less. We'll get some help in avoiding these lesser motives like fear and guilt today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We continue in Romans chapter 12. We not only need to have the right motive, but also the right instruction. Here to help on both counts is Pastor Ed. Now in chapter 12, we turn a corner where we're going to get very applicational. We move from deep doctrine now to deep action. And our actions are going to flow from this right understanding of God. And with all that God has taught us through our brother Paul, in chapter 12, if you look at that with me, verses 1 and 2, we're left with two choices. Not six choices, not ten choices, but with all that we've learned of God, We're left with just two choices. Let's read. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 together. You guys ready? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to read it together, and it's left us with just two choices. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, don't, come on, keep going. It's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the question is, what is the will of God? Well, we're going to learn how to live out the perfect, the acceptable, and the good will of God. And here are the two choices. After all that we've learned about God, Wherever you've picked up with us in the study, after all that we've learned about God, your choice is, number one, to be conformed to this world. There are a lot of Christians that are conformed to this world. It's sad because you can go into a group of people and you won't be able to identify the Christian because they look just like the world and they sound just like the world and they live just like the world. It shouldn't be so. The Christian should affect the world, not the world, the Christian. But that's a choice. You're going to have to make it yourself. You're going to have to come to some conclusion in your own heart what kind of Christian life you want to live, how you want to represent Jesus Christ. Or the alternative is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to be a different person, to be really open for God to do a work in your heart, to change you, to to wrestle with the things in your life and give them up and offer them to God as you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Those are the choices before us, the will of God. 
I mean, the question, the questions surrounding the will of God are very common for us. What is the will of God for my life? What do you want me to do, Lord? How do I find the will of God? God, what would you have me to do in this situation? Where would you have me to live? What would you have me to do? How would you have me to act? What answer do you want, want me to give this person? What's your will? How does this situation, God, fit in your plan for my life? I don't see it. I want to know. They're common. We all ask them. I would dare say that we as Christians ask those questions just about every day of our life. Things come up like, what's your will for my life, Lord? I don't, I don't understand. It's amazing, though, because on the one hand, we have no problems with God's eternal will for us as Christians. There are very few Christians you go up to and say, hey, what's God's eternal will for your life? I mean, if you were to die tomorrow, where would you go? If they're a Christian, they're going to say, I'm going to heaven. I'm spending eternity with God. He sent his only begotten son to pay the price for my sins. I'm confident in that. I trust in that. And I would say, unless it's a really a bad day for you, you don't have a problem with that question. You're like, yeah, I know where I'm going. I know what God's doing in my life. I trust God for the eternal part of my will, of his will for my life, the eternal part of my life, I trust him. But when it comes to the temporary things, that's where we have a great lapse in our faith. <laughs> like we'll trust God to save our soul, but we don't trust him to help us with our bills. It's just the reality of life. We don't trust him with our health or with our kids. We want to take control because we we think we have better wisdom than God. No, God, you take care of the eternal part. I'll take care of the temporary part. And what Paul's going to tell us, he's going to know, God's going to take care of it all. It's an all or nothing kind of proposition here. Jesus, he died to save all of you, not just part of you. And he wants you to surrender it all. And we're going to break down these verses over the next few weeks in each section, looking at a section how it all fits together in discovering the will of God for our lives. So right here in verses 1 and 2, you have some very specific instructions. Then Paul's going to follow it with the rest of the chapters from 12, 13, 14, and half of 15. He's going to give us instruction on the will of God in more general terms. So for instance, he's going to say, later after dealing with us personally, he's going to give us insight on God's will for our lives in relation to spiritual gifts. We're going to look at them together. Then he's going to give us information and teach us about God's will in relation to getting along with others. Kind of like the world's a big sandbox, right? We all need to get along with each other. That's God's desire, that we might bring the love and joy of Jesus Christ into people's lives. He's going to teach us that. He's going to teach us God's will in relationship, get this, to your enemies. How do you treat your enemies? And already, if you've read ahead, you have read something where it says you can heap coals on their head, coals of fire on their head. And you're like, I can't wait for that section. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not that way at all. But we'll get to that. Then he's going to teach us God's will in relation to the government. And if you want the weight of what we're going to learn there, just think three letters. I-R-S. <laughs> That'll put it in perspective for you. And he's going to teach us God's will in relation to the weaker Christians around you. How do you deal, how do I deal with those that might be weaker in the faith around me? Do I care about them? Do I temper my actions and my lifestyle so that I won't stumble the weaker brother? Or am I just 
interested in myself, and I don't really care about the... We're going to get into that as well. But I want you to see right away that in verse 1 he says, I beseech you, therefore... Therefore, you might want to mark the word therefore. You might want to look for that word throughout the New and the Old Testament because whenever you come across the word therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. It's a connection word. I mean, we don't use that word at the beginning of a sentence. Do, do you? You know, if I'm introducing you to someone, hey, this is, therefore, this is my wife Marie. And you're like, therefore what? Like, I, I'm cool, I can meet, but therefore, we don't use that word. But we do use it when we connect, and that's what Paul's doing here. He says, listen, the word therefore, kind of, you could kind of interpret it this way. Because of everything that I've just said, now learn this. And it could refer to just the section, therefore, after Paul had, remember, ended chapter 11 with this great worship of God. And he's, after you're worshiping God, therefore, we're just so caught up in the love and the grace of God, consider these actions. Or this word therefore could connect chapters 1 through 11 after all that we've learned therefore I have action for you of those two options I choose the latter I think he's referring to the entire book of Romans up to this point he's just finished a time of great personal worship and he's just like okay 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 therefore there's action all that we know now it's time for action so when you see the word therefore just remember it's a connection it connects us backwards to what has been said earlier. And so either way, what we're going about to learn in Romans chapter 12 is predicated on our understanding of God's love for us, his dying for our sins. We have that underlying foundation that we have a love relationship with God, not one motivated by guilt. So he says, I beseech you. You might want to mark that word as well. You're going to circle every word by the time we're done. But this word is the word beg. It's the strong word that Paul uses to beg us to action. This isn't Paul demanding us. It doesn't say, I command you, therefore. I demand you, therefore. He says, I beg you guys. I beg you to consider what I have to say, what I have said and what I have to say. And you know it's a tough spot when you get to a place with a friend or a loved one where you're begging them to get it. You're begging them to listen. You're begging them to receive. You're begging them. It's a tough spot because what you're sharing with them, they obviously don't want to receive. But you know from your perspective, they've got to receive it. They're on a bad path. It's going to end in disaster. It doesn't have to be negative. They're at a good place, and they don't want to move from that good place. They just want to stay there. They just want to hang out there. They don't want to grow anymore. They don't want to be stretched. You go, no, no, I beg you. It's worth it. Be stretched and grow. Step out in faith. Go for it. Give yourself to the Lord. That's where Paul is. He's begging, not commanding, not demanding, even though he could as an apostle. He had the authority to. He could have said, you know what, guys? This is unquestionable. You don't have a choice here. But Paul, knowing, inspired by the Spirit, you do have a choice here of whether to follow through and present yourself to God. And so do I. The word for beseech here is interesting. It's the Greek word parakaleo. For those of you that are Bible students, that's a familiar word, isn't it? It's the same word that John uses in John's gospel to describe the Holy Spirit. That he's the helper, the comforter, the counselor. Para simply means to come alongside. Kaleo, to render aid. And Paul says as a pastor, he says, I want to come alongside of you to render aid. I want to help you along in this path. I want to get you in the right direction. I want to point you in the right direction. 
I want you to notice, too, the basis of his appeal here as we move in. It's, and the motive isn't just to discover the will of God. It's because it's the right thing to do. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. God's mercy, his grace. Mercy, not receiving what you deserve. Remember, we drew the picture last week of being in a courtroom scene. You're guilty. The judge says you're guilty. You're ready for the sentence. And instead, the sentence is three years probation. No jail time. You deserve jail. You've got three years of jail hanging over you, but I'm going to show you mercy. Now, the judge may or may not say that, but that's what he's doing. I'm going to let you go. You're going to leave my courtroom a free man, a free woman. But listen, if you blow it in the next three years, you're going to get judgment. And God, he says, I have shown mercy. And he does every day of our lives. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning, whether we realize them or not. He's so merciful to us. By the grace of God, he does not give us what we deserve daily. He's such a merciful God. There's no greater incentive, church, to godly, holy living than thinking on the great and wonderful truths of God's love. You can jot this down in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Some have made the mistake that say, you know, if you teach the grace and the love and the mercy of God, people will then learn to disobey God's laws. The idea is if you're always talking about God's love and his mercy and his grace, then what's happening among the congregation is just going to go out and live like the devil. Listen, if you have ever interpreted the teaching here as permission to go live like the devil, you're wrong. We'll just settle that right now. God's love and mercy isn't some motive to take advantage of him. That's our flesh. It's like, oh, God's so good, he'll just forgive me anyway. But you'll deal with the consequences, I'll tell you. Oh, he's so good, he'll forgive me when I cry out to him because, oh, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just. Yes, he is, you're right, yes. But you've crushed the heart of God by your sin. Why would you do that willingly? Why would we even go that way? And so people will stay away. There'll be entire churches that all they talk about is judgment and the hellfires. And you know, judgment is true. And hell is a horrible place. But those are poor motivators to action. You know, for love, people do crazy things for love, man. Like love will cause you to do stuff that normally you would never do. You'd never even go that way. I mean, the love of a parent for their kids, a love of a husband or a wife, the love of a mom, a dad, or a kid toward his parents, your love for your grandparents. Love is a major motivator. Love is the, the flowing of God's love in our lives. What it does is it creates action immediately. We'll serve someone, we'll give to someone, and whatever the price it pays, we'll deal with that later. I know it's going to cost me, and you might even be surrounded with people. Don't you understand? Don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know what this is? And you're surrounded with people, and, and you hear them, and you take in, but you're so captivated by love for someone that, man, I know, I know. I know, but I just really believe this is God's will for me. But for guilt, if you've lived under a roof of guilt your whole life, or you might have been in a congregation that used guilt to motivate you, that just wasn't fun at all. That's just not fun to feel guilty all the time. 
I mean, if you look hard enough, you'll feel guilty of just about everything in your life. I mean, if you're that kind of self-examined, if you're that kind of pessimist, you'll find it. And if you're involved in maybe the, the home that you lived in or the church you were, just use guilt and guilt and it's so much a part of your life that it's actually a struggle for you to let go of the guilt and allow God's love and mercy and compassion and grace motivate you, you actually are scared. Like, I don't feel guilty about this. I don't feel guilty that I read, I read six chapters today. I don't feel guilty I didn't read seven. I'm scared. You don't need to be scared because love is motivating you. Next time you might do seven. Next time you might do ten. Next time you might read the whole Bible without getting up. It's just as the Lord leads you. And guilt is a horrible motivator. When Paul appeals to us, he doesn't tell us, you better do this, or he just says, listen, if you saw things the way I saw things, you'll do it. <laughs> I mean, if you really are connected to the Lord like I'm connected, which is available to you, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, his great grace. And I love this because Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say, clean up your act, then come to God. Clean up your act, get everything in order, deal with all the issues in your life, break all of your addictions, throw all of your bondage, and when you're clean and you're ready, then maybe God will present. Then maybe you can present yourself to God and he might use you then. No, no, he just says, think of God's mercies. Worship him in spirit and in truth. And give him your whole life, because that's what he's going to say. Give him your whole life. Give him everything. Don't ever forget that. God, our motive for serving him is never guilt. It's always grace. Please never, ever, ever forget that. The motive of drawing near to God is his goodness and his grace. That when you draw near to God, the Bible says he draws near to you. Don't ever forget that. It's always based on grace. It's not based on threats of hell and judgment. You go, wait a minute, Pastor Ed, doesn't hell and judgment exist? Oh, yes. Absolutely. In Jesus Christ, he came to this earth to die a horrible death, rose again the third day, so that you could avoid both the judgment of God and the hellfires of God, if you place your faith in him today. Oh, yeah, they're real. And yet, there's a real rescue available to you through Jesus as well. You know, you know that famous verse, right? John 3, 16. For God so guilted the world. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? He sent Jesus Christ. He was motivated by what? Love. He's the pattern for our lives. He didn't want you to be all beat up and guilty because Jesus came. He wanted you to be melted and embrace what he's done in your life. Draw near to him. Now, there is a sense, and I have to balance this, there is a sense where guilt is good when you're guilty. You want to sense that weight of guilt so that you recognize that things aren't right in your life and you repent. So it's not that all guilt is bad because there is that sense where God, by his Holy Spirit, will use a guiltiness of an action or a thought or something that's been revealed by the Scriptures and it motivates us to repent. But to live under the banner of guilt, under the umbrella of guilt, is not God's will for your life. And so as we start this journey, discovering the will of God, the very first thing we learn is that it is by grace that we discover the will of God. It's a life of grace, not guilt. It's a trusting of God, recognizing that he is ready and willing to reveal and give you the answers that you're looking for. He is desiring, as much as you're desiring, to connect and say, son, this is the way you should go. These are the things you should do. 
This is the direction I have for you. This is where I've gifted you, so go out and serve me. This is where I have seen, I've created your personality in this way. I want to use you in this area of life. This is why you're working where you're working. Don't you see it? Don't you see? No, you're clouded, aren't you? By all the garbage at work and all the way you're treated and all the new rules and you're not getting paid enough and the people there, that new person in the cubo is getting on your nerves and you don't like it and it's stressful and it clouds you that this is God's will for your life to show up to work tomorrow. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it's God's will for your life. If you've got an 8 o'clock start date tomorrow morning, you need to go to work. Got it? No, some of you don't got it. <laughs> I'm not going to work, man. I feel, <coughs> I feel a little sick, you know. <laughs> but all these things cloud us to, to the fact that God has you where he has you. I don't know for how long, but if you've got an 8 o'clock start time tomorrow morning, be there at 745. You'd be the best employee you can possibly be under Jesus Christ that no accusation can come against Jesus because of your behavior or your attitude. I know it's tough. I mean, I wish I could just take the toughness, but it's part, it's part of the curse, man. It's sin. Can you imagine what it would be like to work in a sinless environment? Wouldn't that be cool? A lot of people think, well, well I know. I, uh, one day I hope to work for the church, man. That must be a real sinless environment. <laughs> I don't think so. It's knucklehead central for all of us here, you know. We're all just growing in the grace of God together. A work environment, still a work environment. And there's still something in us that just doesn't like to work. There's just still something in us that longs for something more. And we falsely conclude that it doesn't involve our work. But God has sanctified your talent and your profession and your career as an avenue outside of the walls of this fellowship. It's sanctified for you to go out into the world and affect people for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's just one example. We'll get through it completely. But it begins with grace, not guilt. And so Paul, his motive, he says, I beg you guys, based on the mercies of God, all that he's about to say to us are not from some demanding pastor that's just some guy's going to throw his authority and his weight around. He says, listen, if you could see it, that's kind of what we do when we beg someone. So if you could see it from my perspective, you'd agree with me. If you could just see a little bit more, I know you're caught up in the situation, I know you don't see some of it, but if you would see it from my perspective, if you could just add my, if you would just pray about it, if you would just seek God about it, I think he'd show you what I see. I beg you, please listen to me. And Paul says, I beg you guys, this is good stuff. I know we've done 11 chapters of heavy-duty doctrine. We've waded through some of the, if not the most heaviest doctrines in all the Bible. And we've got them. We've tackled them. We've learned them. We're embracing them. Now he says, okay, it's not over yet. It's not just for knowledge's sake. Now all that you've learned, I beg you guys, it's time to present yourselves to God like you've never done before. Doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, it's always a good thing to present yourself to God, afresh and anew. And that, my friend, is where the will of God is discovered. It's not discovered on TV or some new teacher and new doctrine, new thing floating out there. Remember, all of Scripture is inspired of God, and it's profitable to teach us the truth about God, to reveal His will for our lives, both eternally and temporarily. 
There's no mistake about where and how God's will is found and what's to motivate us. With that said, there's still more to glean on the discovery process and the doing of God's will. We'll get into that next time on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor is just getting started in the very rich 12th chapter of Romans. If you enjoyed the message, hear it again online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen through our app. You can search for that in the App Store or Google Play. Just look for Calvary Aurora. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to bringing the truths of God's Word to the radio every day. But we can't do it alone. We look to our listeners to help us provide these daily studies. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we'll send you A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. We've all been hurt by the words or actions of another, but when it comes from another Christian, that can be really hard to handle. A Tale of Three Kings will lead you to God's hope and healing for times like these. You'll be comforted as you read A Tale of Three Kings, too. So order a copy right now by calling us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Then join us next time when we'll pick up where we left off in Romans right here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.